Hello, everyone, and welcome to One Meal, One Workout, your new approach to food and fitness. Brought to you by Element OP Productions, elementop.com. And now, here are your hosts, Aaron Butler and Don Sullivan. Good afternoon, everybody. It is 117 degrees in Texas right now, somewhere. Right now, it's about 100 where we're at. I'm broadcasting from an undisclosed location in Lake Jackson, Texas, which is down the Gulf Coast, a little south of Houston. You can't go too south of Houston, I guess, because you end up in the Gulf. But if you follow the coast around a little ways, you get to Lake Jackson. And I've got, as always, with me, Mark Cockrell. Hello, everyone. He's so excited to be here, you can't hardly stand it. What's the temperature in the pod pod, Mark? The pod pod is a cozy 77 degrees. That's not too bad. And then, as always, we have Don Sullivan. Hi, Aaron. Don, how's the weather in uh, southeast Georgia? It's real, real buggy and hot. <laughs> buggy. Are you still having uh, forest fires? Is that a meteorological um, uh, description, buggy? When the South Georgia state bird is the mosquito, yes, it is a meteorological <laughs> description. We do things so a little different you, down here. Are you still having the fires down there? Yes, to an extent. We're not hearing as much about them. I don't know if that's because nothing has changed or they've gone away or people have just gotten bored. It could be on any of those options. <laughs> Newscasts have to keep uh, keep rotating the story. People get tired of it. Exactly. Well, I want to... I just want to plug a uh, a blog real quick of a friend of mine, Joshua Perkins. It's called Road to Tough Mudder. He and I will be doing the Tough Mudder competition in Virginia in uh, October, October 22nd to be exact. If you don't know what the Tough Mudder is, it is a 8 to 12 mile special forces based optical course, obstacle course, excuse me, not optical course. That's what happens when you poke yourself in the eye while you're doing it. Obstacle course. Uh, benefiting the Wounded Warrior Foundation. They raised over a million dollars for the Wounded Warrior Foundation. It's quite the event. It's more of a, um, it's more of a journey than a, a competition, but it's, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And he's kind of documenting his own training and preparation for it. So if you are interested in that kind of thing, the kind of the extreme obstacle course, uh, endurance, fun, craziness stuff, check out his blog. It's Road the number two TM for tough mutter dot blogspot.com. And we'll put the link in the show notes, but it's road to tough mutter is the name of his blog. And uh, he's putting some good stuff on there and some encouraging stuff and just kind of follow along with him. And then I'm planning on having him on the show sometime after October 22nd, assuming we both survive because there is a big sign at the beginning that says, remember you signed a death waiver. So uh, they've, ha- they've yet to have anyone die. They have had some broken bones and hypothermia and those kind of things. They usually have about a 78% completion rate i believe so uh seven to eight uh out of ten of the people that start the race finish it which is i'm hoping to be one of those numbers all right so don aaron motivation minute i'm gonna say go and you take 15 seconds to encourage somebody let's just drill into being active how would you motivate that person that you are at the water cooler with which would be really strange since you work from home but how would you motivate that person that you're at the water cooler with that uh, they're saying, you know, I've been I've really been needing to work out, but I just haven't been able to get myself out outside the door. How would you do that? And I'm going to pull up on my computer a timer because that's the kind of thing I like to do. What would I look under? I would look under timer. Let's see here. Bringing up the interweb. Should have had this prepared. Countdown timer. It's free online. I'm setting it to 30 seconds 
actually, I'm gonna set it to six. I'm gonna give Don 60 seconds, but I'm gonna tell him 15. Don't tell anybody that I don't tell him that I did that. Are you ready, Don? But Aaron, 15 seconds is not a minute. You can do it. Here we go, and I'll do a five, four, three, two, one countdown at the end. Go. You're motivating me to motivate people. I love it. Wait, are you doing the count? You're, you already did the count? Dang it. Okay. So, <laughs> exercising really is not a huge deal. People make it out to be a really big thing. They think You think that you got to go to the gym membership and pay monthly fees and go be on the elliptical for four hours a day, and it's just not true. You need to do small things to get yourself started. You can end up on an elliptical machine, and that's great, as long as you know that you're not going to spend the rest of your life there. It's something that you're going to need to make a part of your life and to do that, you need to make it something you can live with. Be active. Find things seconds. that you can do to keep yourself out of the chair, away from the chips, away from the TV for at least some of the time during the day. It's not, it doesn't seconds. have to be an all-the-time deal. And it can make a huge difference. And don't expect things to change right up front. But if you give it time, it'll, it'll happen. Time. You actually had five seconds left. I just didn't want you to start another section. Good job, Don. I feel motivated. And Mark, can you Thank pause you. this recording and so, so we can go outside and run a few laps around the block? Sure. All right, pause. Okay, we're back. Man, that was good. Put in three miles. Did my fastest 5K yet. Uh, uh, next on the agenda is the Stranger Danger Contest. Don, do you remember what the Stranger Danger Contest is? It's strange and dangerous. All right. Wait, let me let me tell you what is it the, is. Just do we know what the Stranger Danger contest is yet, or do we know if we know what the Stranger Danger contest is yet? You should know what it is because we we talked about it. We talked about it the last episode. So well, I, I know. Think you should know what it is now. If I don't know what the order these are going to come out in, we may flip flop. So nobody else out there may know yet. So I'm going to go ahead and tell you this, this one what time. I'm saying. The Stranger Danger contest is my attempt to get somebody I don't know to let me know that they have listened to this podcast. It's shameless, shameless self promotion is all it is. To make me feel better, to make sure that at least one person out there that I don't know has heard this, and uh, that's exactly what it is. It's it's pandering to the masses to try to get somebody to to come online and go to the uh, forums on elementopi.com, our host site, or to go to facebook.com forward slash one mil one workout or any of those millions of places that we'll tell you about at the end of the show that you can go and just put something like, "I don't know you and I listen to your podcast." You could even tell me if you liked it or didn't. Either one's fine. Uh, I prefer that you like it, of course, but I'll take either any kind of criticism or any kind of feedback is good feedback. And uh, if you can do that, if the first person that does that puts that somewhere out there and then emails me at Aaron, A-R-O-N, at one meal one com and says, hey, I went to Facebook and I put that on there and um, I'm a stranger. I've never met you before and just stumbled across your podcast somehow. Then I will send you a T-shirt that has yet to be created and it will be really awesome, I promise. Or you can opt for the secret second prize. And I will tell you what that is once you send me the email. Are you going to give Nathaniel a Haynes undershirt and a bag of markers? Mark, don't give it away. Yes, oh, I'm going to let my five-year-old son design the shirt. <laughs> I'm just going to give him some spray cans and uh, and and get him out on the, on the carport and say, see what you can do with this, son. And uh, no, I'm not really. I, I'm actually going to do something I hope to be to use going forward. So I will have a professionally designed shirt that I will send to you um, in the size of your choice, obviously, and uh, that will be the prize. So the first person that can do that will get that T-shirt unequivocally, without doubt, mailed to their house. Does that sound exciting? I think it's exciting. Not really for me, but I'm not a stranger. So yeah. you can't expect much from us, Aaron. Come on. This is not your target audience. You're exactly right. <laughs> not here Not here in the podcast. 
Don, do we have something Here. in the news that we'd like to talk about? Do you, do you have any idea what what's in the news recently that we might want to bring to the other attention other to than intense intense heat waves across the country? We already talked about that one, right? Yes. Oh, we did. We did oh, talk okay. about the heat waves. Well, at least we in, in one of the recordings, we may have actually dumped that from the uh, my previously failed attempt to record this podcast, but we'll see. I don't, I don't mean uh, to derail things too much here, but can I just say that it makes me laugh every time it's hot in summer is a news story. Yes, it's summer. It's supposed to be hot. Stop talking about it. Because in a couple <laughs> of months, you'll be telling us it's cold in winter. It is true. And it's rainy in the spring, and the leaves fall off in the fall every year. The hard part about the summer to me is that you can put on more clothes in the winter, but the opposite is not true in the summertime. But, oh, moving you can, on, but, but, you get, but you get in trouble if you try it. I tried it. That's right. <laughs> Especially if you're running. Oh, maybe we in need the, to stop. In the news, stop. Don. Okay, in the news. Let's keep going. Oh, my God. All right, so in the news, a study has recently been done about the 10 fattest states in America. And this is... This was somewhat depressing for me to read because I started to notice how many of the states are in the South. There's a couple way up there, but lots of them are are down home here. Aaron, what did you what did you think about these? Well, my, the thing that scared me was, and the articles is from the Business Insider. We'll put the link in the show notes for it too. Uh, the thing that scared me was that in 1991, no states had obesity levels over 15 percent. Um, as of today, only one state has obesity levels below 20%. So in the last, uh, what is that, 20 years, we've gone from every state having less than 15% to now every state but one having more than 20%. And, uh, and, and 12 states have levels over 30%. And that's just scary. One out of three people in this entire state of the union uh, is obese. That's just crazy. That's what scared you, other than the pictures. Oh, yeah, not yeah, the that there's anything wrong with these people, but I looked like that until very recently, and it's eye-opening. Yeah, it is. And I didn't I didn't usually go to the beach, though, without a shirt on and sit around like that. I tried yeah. to clothe myself at, for the sake of the others. But anyway, enough, enough dribble um, out of my mouth. I've got with me today a special guest, and I'm going to go ahead and get him on here so he's not having to listen to me blather any more than he has for his entire life. Uh, we have with us Dr. Stephen Eggleston, an orthopedic surgeon. Um, also, originally, or not originally, but uh, you were also a physical therapist, correct, first? Can you hear me? Yes, that's correct. Can you hear him? Can Absolutely. Hear him? Absolutely. Awesome. So, Steve was a physical therapist. He went back to medical school and got his orthopedic surgery stuff. Um, I'm not sure the licensure and what it takes to do that to people, but he has it all. And so not only does he have the background of orthopedic surgeon, but also a background of a physical therapist. And so when I first started this podcast up, I thought to myself, who would be interesting to have on this show? And I thought my friend Stephen would. Not only is he my best friend from childhood, from the age of five, when I went over to his house and played Pong at his birthday party on his little computer, um, but he's also a uh, very uh, well-respected physician type person and knows a lot about a lot of this kind of stuff. And I know personally that I've been worried when I started exercising and I weighed almost 400 pounds about getting injured. So I thought, let's have Dr. Steven Eggleston on the show to talk about sports related injuries, what people, what kind of things people see um, happening to themselves when they start losing weight and they maybe get injured or trying to exercise for the first time. And so I'm kind of leaving this open-ended 
Um, so we're just going to freeform it and talk about it. Don, Mark, feel free to uh, take advantage of the situation and jump in with questions if you um, have any, because it's not every day you have a um, a orthopedic surgeon at your bequest. Is that the right word? Um, I, I think we're past the quest day. <laughs> I think behest <laughs> is the word you're looking for. Behest, thank you. Yeah, you found me. <laughs> so we're uh, we're here, we're live, and um, we're ready to go. So, Stephen. Yes. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Kind of give us, I, I, I gave it the, the 10 cent version of your back medical background, but tell us kind of what your training is and how you got where you are and how long you've been practicing and those kind of things. Okay, so this will be all about me. Yeah. I'm, I'm 42. Uh, I grew up in Sweeney, which is where Aaron grew up, which is a very small town in Texas. We both graduated from Sweeney High School. I think he graduated higher than I did. I wasn't too much into high school. But after that, uh, I decided to become a physical therapist. So now you have to get a PhD to be a physical therapist, in Texas at least. I don't know a lot of people know that. Uh, but it's a very high uh, selectivity rate to get a, to be a physical therapist because lots and lots of people want to do it. And there's not that many jobs, so they keep upping up the uh, educational requirements. But whenever I was doing it, it was a bachelor's degree. So I went to University of Texas Southwestern in Dallas and got a bachelor's degree in physical therapy. I didn't do very much sports stuff. I was more interested in, in neurologic disorders, spinal cord injuries, stroke, head injuries, those sorts of things. I uh, practiced three years in Dallas. And then after that, I noticed whenever we'd do our rounds or we'd meet in the big meetings or whatever, the doctor would be there and he'd be the head of the thing. I'd say, what do the x-ray show? What do the lab show? And when you're a physical therapist, you don't get exposed to things like reading x-rays and looking at labs and doing those sorts of things. I mean, you take care of people and you take care of people very well and you, you do what you can, but there's a whole other side to it. that you, All the fancy stuff you don't get to do. All the fancy do. stuff you're not exposed to, you know, and the nurses and everything, you know. I said, well, you know, there's a lot more to know here. And I figured I had some time. I could do that. And so I applied to medical school. I'd, it had always been a little bit of a, of a sort of a, what am I going to do after physical therapy school, you know, because I basically topped out uh, as far as clinically and, and physical therapy because I was a contract therapist in Dallas and I was known in Dallas for working with spinal cord injury and things like that. And so I said, well, I'll, I'll go back to school. And so I did. And because my wife is from West Columbia, which is a very small town, and I'm from Sweeney, which is a very small town, they're eight miles apart, <laughs> I decided I would go to University of Texas in Galveston. Went to medical school in Galveston for four years. Orthopedics is a pretty competitive, again, uh, a residency. So whenever I first started, I said, well, you know, I'm already making a fairly good living. I'm a little known with what I'm doing. Perhaps I should try to do the best I can. So if I want to do the best I can, and I guess this is a little bit of a feed into that, I need, this, I need to set goals. And so I'll just set a goal. I want to do the best I can in medical school. And if I want to do the best I can in medical school, I need to say, what are the most competitive things to do? Those were dermatology, ear, nose, and throat, which I had no interest in either of those. You didn't want to look up people's nose and at their boogers right along? No. I can't believe it. And, and then <laughs> the other one was uh, orthopedics. So I just said, well, I'll just I'll just sign up for orthopedics. I know a little bit about it from physical therapy or more than a little bit, but some about it. And then I did some research in it and then met the guys in the program and did, did rotations in it and then sort of fell into it. And once you graduate from medical school, uh, not a lot of people know this, uh, but you have to apply for a residency. You don't just get to go do whatever you want. 
And uh, once again, I guess the guys in Galveston liked me enough. And so I decided, well, I'll just stay in Galveston. So after medical school, I spent five years uh, and still at Galveston uh, doing orthopedic surgery residency. And when I was done with that, because my family lived here and her family lived here, I moved down to the Lake Jackson area, which is in Brazoria County, which is south of Houston. But it's not as small as what's Columbia or Sweeney, though. No, Lake Jackson's a little bigger. It has about 160,000 catchment area for the hospitals down here. And I uh, started practicing, and I've been practicing as a uh, orthopedic surgeon for eight years. So, Steve, so you went to a bachelor's degree in physical therapy, four years of school, let's just say roundabout. Yeah, years. Four. And then four years of medical school, that's yeah. eight. Five years of residency. Right. That's 13. And then you have to practice for two years, and you can apply to get board certified, so which everyone does. And so after two years of practice, you can go and take the, the, the last couple tests, and you get board certified after two years, and you're a board certified orthopedic surgeon. Ta-da. Right. And so that's where I and am. So now. you're a board certified orthopedic surgeon, uh-huh. and 15 years of education leading up to it, counting your physical therapy stuff. So you know more about um, physical, I mean, orthopedic stuff probably than I do since I just took two classes of A&P at a junior college. Well, maybe, but I took those same classes. But everybody seems to think that I'm, since I also work in the medical field, I should be able to diagnose right. <laughs> people about things. And typically, I'm, I'm usually on about 50% of the time. Half the time, I'm totally wrong and people end up hurting themselves with my, with my advice. But uh, the other half of the time, I really can't help people. So I'm just kidding, of course. But no, so Stephen obviously is qualified to speak about this subject. And um, and so I just want to ask a couple of questions, Stephen, just kind of get you going here. And um, we'll just do some give and take. Don, Mark, jump in whenever you whenever you want. Do you now, you said when you were doing physical therapy, it was spinal. Spinal cords, brain spinal, injury, and stroke mostly. All neuro stuff. Uh, now, well, yeah. since you're doing orthopedic, I'm assuming you're seeing, you see a wide range of injuries and and problems. Well, there's another little thing which I didn't talk about, which is subspecialty training in orthopedics. And you can do that in a lot of different things. Uh, but when you're done with your general orthopedics, you can decide you want to do something special and be a special. So you're going to be a special uh, guy, specialist. <laughs> a special specialist. And then what you do is you go for a year and train under uh, uh, well known guys. And then once you do that, then you can, I think, hand. And I think also sports medicine, they have a, a, a test you can take so you can be subspecialty credentialed in that. Uh, I thought about doing it in foot and ankle. And I told my wife and she started uh, to cry because we had been doing it for so long. She was ready for me to <laughs> get out and start working. Uh, and so I didn't do a subspecialty. I had a couple of offers from people as far as go here and do that. Uh, but I decided to be a generalist. And what a generalist does is somebody who works in a small town, which is – uh, what you almost have to do, if you uh, you almost have to be a generalist if you're going to work in a small area, because basically you, what you have to say is whatever it is, with the exception of a couple of things, whatever it is, I'll take care of it. Now, if it's super crazy, complicated, or something that's just awful, then you can say, well, you need to go to Houston and see this subspecialist. Uh, but if you were in a, a town like I am, uh, and you said, uh, I've I've hurt my hip. Uh, I need to see an orthopedist. You don't want a super subspecialist helping you with that. You say, well, we have a guy who does hands. We have another guy who does um, spine, but we don't have any generalists here. If you hurt your hip, you have to go somewhere else. And so basically I see most everything. I don't see any spine. There's a couple of kid things that I don't do. Uh, I don't do things like tumors and cancer and things like that. But uh, nearly everything else, if you walk through my door, 
so I can get you almost all the way there. And if and I can identify things that I don't feel comfortable with, or things that other people who have who have decided their life is going to be afoot, right. <laughs> you can send them to those guys and say, well, "This is very strange." So today was a surgery day, right? Today was a surgery day. So, so what'd you do today? Just as a, a typical surgery day. So today I got up at five uh, thirty. I went down to the surgery center that, uh, that is here in Lake Jackson. I did something called a trigger digit, where a lady has a finger that catches up, uh, and it, it's more complicated than that. But it catches up, so you have to do a surgical release of that. I injected the other side. When I got done with that, I went to the hospital and did a total hip replacement on a guy. After that was done, there was uh, another lady who had had a meniscal tear, a tear of the pad in her knee, um, did an arthroscopic surgery on her knee and fixed that. After that, there was another lady who had a cyst on her elbow that I excised. And, uh, I mean, that's I mean you cut it out. Yeah, I, I cut it out. That aren't like me, don't cyst. have a strong medical background. Uh, what did I do <laughs> after that? I mean, it's... Uh, after that, I did a rotator cuff repair on somebody had a torn rotator cuff, and I did. Uh, I think that's all that I did. Now I know you. You just said you didn't do a. That's all you did today. Um, I, on the other hand, went swimming with my five-year-old son. <laughs> I do that, but not your son. I ate some. Uh, ate a tuna fish sandwich. Um, so you say you did not do a subspecialty, um, but. Right. Do you see some sports-related injuries pretty regularly? Yeah, or? yeah I see a lot of sports-related injuries. What, what do you I'm, see a lot of? I see a lot of knees. I uh, see a lot of foot and ankle. From what sports do you typically see those? Um, I am uh, football, soccer. I see a lot of soccer, a lot of football, baseball. Uh, I would have to think about exactly what sports, essentially all sports. Anything that requires running, huh? You see lots of... Yeah, you see a lot. I mean, if we're, we're focusing more on running, I will see people who are runners who are more recreational runners, not really professional runners. Mm-hmm. I'll see high school athletes who have running dis- disorders or running problems that have run that have run into problems <laughs> and uh, those sorts of things. So I see uh, a lot. And, and being in a community, uh, I don't see that many professional athletes. I've seen professional athletes operate on professional athletes. Uh, but in a community like this, you don't get the professional athlete group which are a separate group uh as far as rehab and 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 what you can and can't do we can talk more about that if you have a lot of time (laughs) about how you would treat a professional athlete versus a recreational athlete or someone who's uh, just starting to train and these sorts of things they're they're different groups of people and they have different problems and they have different resources and they have different things Uh, let's just do a quick i don't think we probably have too many professional athletes listening to this podcast at this juncture well we'll do a quick example We'll do, we'll do a quick example. Let's say that you have a 17-year-old who is going to be a professional athlete or collegiate athlete. He's very high, you know, five-star, blue-chip, whatever guy, and he has a meniscal tear. He has a tear of one of the pads in his knees. Well, if he has a tear of one of the pads in his knees and he's 17 years old, if he has one that's appropriate for repair, you can repair it. And when you repair it, you put stitches in it. And you put stitches in it, and hopefully it will work. Well, even the properly selected ones will only heal 80% of the time. It's only is 80. Well, okay, 20% of the time it won't work. I say, well, then what else can you do with it if you're not going to repair it? Well, you can cut it, the torn part out. All right, great. You can cut the torn part out. So let's say you cut the torn part out. There's a different surgery. One of them you repair, one of them you cut it out. If you repair it, what does that mean? If you repair it, it means that they can't walk on it. They can't put weight on it for six weeks. 
because it's a very tenuous repair. It only works 80% of the time. All right, there's that. What if it doesn't work? Well, then they need another surgery. Okay, so More downtime. So then they have to have another surgery. So you say, okay, great. Well, what's the? there's got to be a benefit to it. Then. I mean, there's got to be a reason that you can do it. Well, the reason that you would do it is that at 17 years, you can see a difference on the x-rays. You can see that the person who you repaired their meniscus has a better x-ray than the person that you just took the piece out. You cannot tell by looking at the people any difference. However, you have to have a long-term follow-up in order to be able to tell if there's really a difference. You've only been repairing pads for about 20 years. Otherwise, we'd take them out. We also know that if you take the whole pad out because it's torn, they do bad. At, at five to ten years, they start getting arthritic changes. So the difference is if you have a 17-year-old blue-star athlete or blue-chip athlete, three, you know, five-star athlete or whatever, you would want to repair him. Well, why would you want to do that? Well, he doesn't have to walk on his knee. He can walk with crutches for six, six weeks, and 80% of the time, he'll be cured. He's going to put a lot of miles, a lot of damage to his knee. You want to hit, give him the best possible knee. You say, well, I want to give everybody the best possible knee. All right, so let's say we got a 48-year-old man who's got a meniscal tear. What are you going to do with him? Well, I want to repair it. Okay, you're going to have to be off your job for six weeks at least. And there's a 20% chance that we're going to have to operate on you again. But if you're 42, that means by the time you're 59, your x-ray might look a little better. But your, your overall function will not be any better by the time you're 60. What do you want to do? Well, I want to go back to work in eight days. I, I can't take time off to do that. Right. And so that's how things can be different when you treat different populations. And I guess that's uh, a long-winded way of saying that you can't just externalize whatever you want to do to everybody. And it depends. Uh, a subspecialist would be more into repairing things you know, uh, than, than a generalist. A generalist would just try to get you back to doing what you were doing before uh, a little bit more than trying to give you something that's more risky and less likely to be a benefit to you in the future. Does that well, make any sense? I guess it does. I think it makes sense to me. Um, that's one of many examples. Ankle sprains are in the in example. Lots of other things. Right, I'm sure every, every person, obviously, being in a good position, you treat every patient as an individual. You don't right. have a uh, I don't think you have a, a rubber stamped, you know, carbon copy process that you do. You evaluate each person depending right. on their needs and uh, both physically and socially, you know, like you're talking about the job, needing to get back to work or what have you. So if uh, I, one question I had that I thought was kind of, I don't know if it's something you could even answer or not, but do you see people coming in with an injury related to being an active, having an active lifestyle that they could have prevented? And that the answer may be no. They just fell down because they're clumsy or it just happens because people cut too hard when they're playing soccer. But if the answer is, yes, if they would have done this, if they would have done that, or, then that would be something I think would benefit our audience, would benefit me. I want to know what I can do, like the old thing of don't wear bad shoes, and you always hear those kind of things. Uh, is there anything you see as an injury that is a preventable injury? Well, I think that the most uh, most devastating injuries that someone could have are cardiac or uh, heat-related illness are, are very devastating. And you can run into that for people who do not hydrate or decide one day, hey, I'm getting fat. 
yeah. it's time for me to go run and it's 111 degrees right and i you know i have this i don't know what to wear i don't know when to run i don't know where i'm gonna run and they just get out there and just go and they don't hydrate don't do anything and you can you can have someone just keel over right i mean that happens well from from an orthopedic standpoint though do you do you see any any anything on that line of of a person that an orthopedic injury that could be prevented by education or because obviously like the fat person that goes out in 111 and tries to run and has a heart attack they could have used a little education but that's not necessarily orthopedic related do you see any orthopedic related things along those lines i think aaron's going for like people who worry about not running correctly and they're going to tear their knee up because the answer could even be like you're saying don it could be no i don't find I don't have a, a flood of people who ran wrong, <laughs> you know, but that's not something to be worried about necessarily. Um, um, there, there, there are issues with knee health. I mean, if, I mean, it almost has to get a little bit more specific than that. Uh, there are people who do wrong things. There are people who have certain conditions where they should not do things that they do do them. Um, uh, I think that, uh, I mean, you'd almost have to get a more specific example. And a specific example would be perhaps the person who has a meniscal tear, had a meniscal tear, and then they had an operation on it. And they're concerned. So my knee is more likely to get arthritis. We've already had that discussion. Right. Uh, and, the, and you would say, well, what are good things for arthritis and what are bad things for arthritis, specifically with relation to a knee? I mean, I mean, I mean you almost have to get that specific. Right. Um, basically, whenever you have a knee that you're worried about being arthritic, which if this is a running show, it may not be the, the it's not, best. It's not necessarily a running show. It's a health the best thing. show. Uh, a good rule of thumb for a person who has a knee problem or has had a problem with their knee in the past or has some sort of knee issues is that they should, when they exercise, have their feet on the ground. Now, see, that was this is exactly the kind of thing I'm looking for. We've just mined gold, Don and Mark. A rule of thumb. From Dr. Stephen Eggleston. That's a good thing to have. Say that again, Stephen. They should have their feet on the ground. They should have their feet on the ground. If I have arthritic knees, you should I should have, have your, my feet on the ground. Not my pants on the ground, but my feet on the ground. Your feet on the ground. And what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, what that means is when you talk about things that arthritis likes, uh, now we're getting uh, pretty complicated. Uh, we'll talk about knees in general. Knees are biomechanical. They're not mechanical. There's a difference between biomechanical and mechanical. Okay, that's for another show. So what do we need to do today? To- <laughs> no, but, uh, <laughs> but but what you say is that arthritis, well, most arthritis, although not all, I'm going to talk more about that later, most arthritis is wear and tear arthritis. So you'd say, oh, if you have somebody who runs a lot, they're going to get arthritis. Well, why are they going to get arthritis? Because they wear out. Well, most people I see who have bad knee arthritis are not runners. Right. And they do not get bad knee arthritis from running. So you're saying you don't have an influx of six-year-old runners who have arthritis in their knees from running all the time. Well, you don't run out of words. Yeah. You, yeah I mean, that's the way of saying it. Said, well, I've said the word knapsack 500 times. Well, you're not going to be able to say knapsack much longer because you're going to run out of words. You're going to run out of knapsack as a word. That doesn't work that way. Your body is able to generate knapsack. <laughs> and so as a general example, your body can generate healthy cartilage to a limited extent uh, based on demands. Say, well, I'm going to run a lot. Well, your body will respond to that. Say, oh, we're doing a lot of running. We're going to have to get tough. We're going to have to get in shape. Just like muscles, joints can do the same thing. Say, well, we're going to get stronger and tougher. 
So, so are you that. saying that uh, vigorous exercise, weight-bearing exercise, running, will actually improve um, joint and, and uh, cartilage health? Well, we're going to get to that. <laughs> Mark's uh, skipping ahead. You always went to the end of the test, didn't uh, you, and wrote your name. I, I'm not I, even looking at the notes. I'm just following the lines. <laughs> I was kidding. But, but actually, uh, it will serve to greatly counteract what you would normally expect. Let's put it that way. So you would normally expect someone who runs marathons, their knees would just run out. But their body is biomechanical, not mechanical. So it will respond to the increased demand. Right. As opposed to mechanical, which would be a metal hinge that you work it back and forth enough, it's eventually going to rub. Well, your tires will get bald. Right, yeah. But biomechanical, since it's alive, it can it, regenerate to a certain It will respond to that, okay? And so when you say, well, 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 running or average running, will that cause your knees to blow up? And the answer is no. So I'm safe running as long as I... Well, we're, we're getting, there's more <laughs> dot, to dot, it. Dot. It gets more <laughs> we're going to get to that. All right. And you say, well, no, I've had a knee injury. I've had a knee injury. My knee is not the same as a normal knee. Or you say, I'm going to be a super ultra marathoner. Right. And I'm going to be on a tremendous diet. I'm going to have 1% body fat and I'm going to run 300 miles right. a week. Well, your body's not going to be able to respond to that. It's not, I mean, that can be real dangerous. So somebody said to me, if I did some, had somebody and they had a meniscal injury and they said, I'm worried about running. I'm an ultra marathoner. I run 50 miles a week. Well, there's only a certain amount that you can get to that actually is good for you. I right. mean, you can overdo anything. Right. So and, the average person that's listening to this show, I would guess um, most people that are going to find this show and stick with it are going to be people who have, are either overweight or have been overweight and are attempting to choose a healthier lifestyle. So for that average person that's going to go out and do an average amount of exercise, like maybe three, four miles a day, talking about, we're talking about running, three or four times a week, so maybe 15, 10 to 15 miles of total running a week, their body should, assuming they don't have previous injury and any kind of disease, be able to respond to that, and they're not doing unnecessary wear and tear on their body. They're not running out of knapsacks. That's essentially what I'm saying. There's been a debate for a long time because of this whole wear and tear, mechanical, biomechanical thing about what happens. And so basically what people have done, and it's not me, what they'll do is they will take rabbits and they will take rabbits and they will tear up their cartilage and they'll keep them in a little pen. Ah. And then after they've been in a pen for a long time uh, and get them you know, heavy and fat, they'll let them out and they do horrible. Their knees don't work. They're awful. If you take somebody who has, uh, take a little rabbit and you tear his little cartilage up and you have him run around a lot, he does much, much better than the people who have torn up cartilage who never moved and who are overweight. If you take his x-ray and see how he does, he does worse than the, than the one that doesn't do anything, which is, you know. Okay, has I got, not had their knee messed up. I got I mean, lost somewhere in the rabbit trail. <laughs> so you're saying... If I'm, what I'm saying is that activity is good for arthritis. Too much activity if somebody has an arthritic knee could possibly predictably make them worse. Okay. I would tell you that as somebody who has never had any sort of arthritic problem with their knee, if they run a lot, they run a whole lot, their x-rays will change, but their overall health will be so improved that they should probably better run. But you sort of give a little warning to the people who run 50 miles a day. Those right. kind of people. So if you say, is running bad for my knees? Because you always you say, say that. Running is bad for your x-rays. Okay? <laughs> and running can make your x-rays worse. And so what's really good about running? Well, what's really good about running is that it gets your heart rate up. It gets your weight down. So I say, well, can I do something where I don't 
get my x-rays worse, where I get my heart rate up, and I get my weight down without doing that little x-ray damage to my knees? The answer is yes. What, what do I do? You run, you keep your feet on the ground. What do you do? You do things like bicycling, do things like elliptical, do things like stair stepping. Uh, you do things like that. And, and that will not have the same sort of x-ray effect as the running and the banging will do. Right. So it's the actual impact. Well, it's presumed to be the actual banging, but basically having strong knees and a fit body is great. And if you say, I want to run to do that, say, well, okay, run to do that. As long as you don't have bad knee problems, you should be fine. Mm -hmm. Go ahead and do that. As long as you don't do crazy things, you should be fine. Like the tough butter. Well, I've already got a bad knee and I can't run. I'm going to make myself run. I say, well, you probably not do that. Right. You probably ought to do stuff with your feet on the ground, like elliptical training, mm-hmm. uh, stair stepping, you know, these sort of things. And if you want to go on it down to like what's bad to do, things that are bad to do, there's this, uh, uh, there's this machine called a knee extension machine where you sit on the little bench and you put the weight on your ankles and you straighten your knees out. If you have knee problems, do not do that. If you want knee problems, go ahead. It may very well give you a patellofemoral, which is where your kneecap goes over your femur. It generates tremendous stresses in that area, and you don't get any aerobic benefit. And if you say, well, I just want my knees to get stronger, well, it's better to do your foot on the ground where you won't be isolating your quadriceps as much. You'll be pulling in your hamstrings and your gastrocnemius muscles and all these things. And basically, people are not designed to do that. Say, well, what normal activity do you have where you do that? Well, there's not really a normal activity. So I don't know if anybody here is an evolutionist. Probably you don't have to be to say, well, why am I doing this? This is this is, this is going to unbalance me if it does anything else for right. my other activities. And, and even if it does strengthen my knees, it's only strengthening part of it. I should do stuff that's like normal people stuff. Yeah. And if you always say, I'm doing a normal person stuff. And if you think about it, people used to run. I mean, you know, and, and you bring out the, the news where people, Everyone's getting heavier and things. Well, people used to say, well, I'm going to go down to the post office to get my mail. They'd walk down to the post office right. to get their mail or ride a bicycle to get their mail. That's a little more technologically advanced than walking. And say, well, i got to get somewhere real fast. Well, then you'd run. Let me jump in here just a little bit. Stephen, you, you switched horses there. Uh, you said running and walking. Uh, medically speaking, is there a difference between the two? Yes. Uh, the, uh, the impact your knee is much, 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 much greater if you run than if you walk. So would walking qualify as keeping my feet on the ground? Yeah, walking would qualify because you have one foot on the ground. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have both your feet off. Uh, but, yeah, yes, I would say walking is an excellent thing. But don't do the speed walking thing, not because it's bad for your hips, but because it looks scary. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, walking is very good, and that's what a lot of people can do. And walking is not a high-impact activity. I mean, uh, even things like doubles tennis is not considered a high-impact activity. Singles tennis is considered a high impact activity, but 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 doubles tennis. You say, "Oh, I love playing tennis, and my knee hurts." Well, you can probably do all right in doubles tennis. Right. It requires more people, but playing singles tennis with a torn up knee or a knee replacement is not recommended. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure soccer's the same way too, because there's so much quick turning and starting yeah. and stopping, and yeah, and that's where you get into the you got to have the best possible knee, right? Because it's going to see a lot of stresses, and that's that's where we get back to the very beginning. Well, let's, let me let me just kind of sum up here, make sure we're I'm. I want to try to recap what we've talked about so far. So um, if you've got arthritic knees, if you've got knee problems, then you ought to keep your feet on the ground. You ought to do walking, elliptical, stair stepper, anything that doesn't require a high impact on your knee. 
Yeah. And, and you should run screaming away from anybody that tells you to use that machine at the gym where you sit and you straighten your knees out. I, I would do that. And you worry a little bit about, but don't deep. run screaming away from a walk quickly. Screaming you worry a little bit about deep squats, you know, squats past parallel and those mm-hmm. sorts of things. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, basically you have a hurt knee and you don't want to hurt it more. And that's basically it. And your body will respond to most things. But if you start doing weird things like running 50 miles uh-huh. or doing that machine or, you know, something, oh, this is just weird. I wouldn't recommend it. Well, anytime you're, I would think anytime you're isolating a joint on a machine, you're setting yourself with the potential for injury because you're putting unusual forces on it where your body can't compensate. It's more, more of a weight bearing joint situation. I mean, it's somebody who wants to, and yeah, there's a little bit of that on bench press and posterior shoulder. I'm thinking more like the, uh, the preacher seat where you sit and you, you put your arms down, your elbows, you know, stationary on the thing and you're, trying to start from a full extended arm and then curl up and there's no give your elbow can't come down any your shoulder can't compensate any and so you're isolating the bicep great because you're trying to isolate the bicep but you're putting all that weight that torque right on your elbow you can do that but a lot of you got to think a lot of times whenever you whenever in real life i mean it's why i think you pull with your arm a lot when you pull up a a a five gallon bucket or a gallon of milk and you use that muscle in isolation it's different when you're talking about a knee, because they act in concert, the hamstrings and everything else act together. And you can, if we're talking about hamstring uh, injuries, you will find that people whose quadriceps are more than three times as strong as their hamstrings are more likely to get hamstring tears. Oh, because <laughs> they actually just, they have, the quadriceps their hamstring, their, hamstring? Their, their, their quadriceps get their knee moving faster than their hamstrings can slow it down. And you can end up with a hamstring pull. And so I don't know if that's an, any benefit, but basically you get unbalanced. But you won't find people who get biceps tears because their triceps are too strong because you don't really do that sort of thing. Now, if you're talking about things like throwing a baseball, that's a little different because it's a very ballistic, dynamic thing. And you right. can get unbalanced from overtraining and, and getting your shoulder out of whack. Mm. Uh but you know, say, well, I want to go and then do biceps curls and do bench press and do this, that's okay. When you say, well, I want to do something for my knees, you can do that. Uh, and actually, the biggest problem with that is really the patellofemoral joint, the, the kneecap rubbing on your femur. Because mm-hmm. if you want to flip over and do hamstring curls, that's all right. Oh. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, that's a weird exercise that, uh, you know, but the hamstring so curls are actually all right, as long as you're not grinding your knees into the bench while you're doing it. Right. Steven, uh, let, me, let me ask you a question here. Um, when, when we talk about getting fit, uh, from a muscle standpoint, all right, getting stronger, um, pain is something to be ignored to a large extent. You work through the pain. Is that the same? It's joints, right? So somebody, uh, I'll just use myself as an example from years of being too big, I've got bad knees and bad ankles and they hurt. Is, is that a pain you should work through or a pain you should avoid? Um, it depends on if, if I would try to find something that gets your heart rate up and burns as much calories that didn't make you hurt as much. So if you're already in pain with your knees, you don't want to, but you should not let it stop you. If they say, well, I'm not just, I just can't do anything then. Well, that, no, you should pick something that hurts less. <laughs> there, that's a good answer. Yeah. And back to on, on our previous show, we, we were talking about how to get started being more active. And if you just Google, um, physical, you know, exercises for physical limitations. There's hundreds of 
you know, reputable sites, I'm assuming they're reputable, like Mayo Clinic and things like that, that have exercises you can do seated or, or limited motion and don't do this one if you've got this kind of injury, kind of that kind of stuff. Because obviously, Mark, you wouldn't want to go outside and, and start running today um, because you'd probably injure yourself further because you're still a big guy and you've already got some knee and ankle issues. But like, well, if running is all ground, you had, you may consider doing that. If it, because but it would be but beneficial. But if it's not the only thing you have, then there are alternatives that you should you should do. Maybe a goal being running once you get more weight off, once your joints get stronger, that sort of thing. And there's a there's a syndrome which uh, doesn't have a name, which maybe I'm the first person to do it. But uh, people who lose a lot of weight will get a lot of joint problems. Okay, <laughs> and they'll start complaining more, which is ironic. They'll say, "I hurt more than I did before." So we're going to call it the Eggleston irony complex. Uh, it could be. I mean, and you see it. I've seen it um, many times with people who've had gastric bypass surgery, something where they lose a lot of weight really fast. You say, well, that doesn't make any sense. I should hurt less because I'm not moving as much weight around. But what you don't realize or what I often don't realize is you're doing a lot more. Yeah. Used to you get up and go from the from the, the couch to the fridge and get the whatever and sit down and do. And you say, well, I'm doing a lot more than that. And the other thing is a lot of people who lose a lot of weight get a lot more range of motion than they had before. So I used to couldn't tie my shoes. Well, I can tie my shoes now, but it hurts to tie my shoes. Well, you haven't tied your shoes in 30 years, and you're <laughs> going to have to get things loosened up. And you're right. not used to your, you're doing that. And as far as imbalance, your weight center of gravity is going to shift back and forth, and you're going to use muscles differently than you used them before to do, accomplish the same things. And so when people come to see me, which they do, and they'll come to see me and say, this is just crazy. My knees never really used to hurt. They hurt off and on, but now they're really hurting, and I don't know why. And I just lost 50 pounds, and now they hurt. I say, well, you're doing you more. You have more, complex. You have more <laughs> range of motion, and your knees – should catch up to what you're doing. All right. See, so yeah, I had a funny thing, Steve. When I lost about 75 pounds and was running and walking, I started getting. I'm pointing at my back. Nobody can see it. So Steve and I are actually in the same room. I started getting like muscle spasms in my upper back, and I'm I'm assuming I talked to a couple of runner uh, people who had lost some weight that it ran to do it, and they said they experienced a similar thing. I'm guessing it's maybe like you're talking about the center of gravity type thing, where my muscles I was standing up straighter or pulling differently than I had before, and it lasted for a month or two, and then it went away. Right. And generally what you'll find, or what I've found generally, is those people will gradually get better, and and, and, and they should find things that will help them keep them out of pain but get them more fit. Right. And there's also a well-documented thing that people who, are, who suffer from depression for whatever reason hurt more. The other thing is that fibromyalgia and these sort of overall sort of pain syndromes where I get pain from everywhere, one of the most excellent treatments for that is aerobic conditioning. That works better than almost any drug for fibromyalgia and these sorts of things. So, Is it the in- endorphins and all that stuff that they think? I, I mean, it's an empiric thing. I mean, yeah. you, you don't know I mean, uh, what exactly. You, I got you. It's a lot harder to figure that out. But basically, you won't find a marathon runner. You know, none of those Kenyan guys are saying, I got fibromyalgia. It just doesn't happen. <laughs> and I don't know what exactly that means, but you'll be a typical sedentary, high stress, borderline depression kind of person who says, I just hurt everywhere. Well, there's a lot of, obviously, overweight um, people out there fighting, battling depression and things like that. So, I mean, maybe kill two birds with one stone um, is uh, be active, get, get, some, get your blood pumping and your heart going and get in better shape. And not only will it help you physically, but it also obviously would probably help you based on this empirical evidence, help you with your mood, yeah. you know, 
And there, there have been studies, this is a crazy thing to do, but people will say, my knees hurt too bad to exercise. And used to, and I don't, I don't ascribe to this necessarily. And they say, you're too heavy to get your knee replaced. You have bad knee arthritis, but you're too heavy. You need to lose some weight before we'll replace your knee. Now, obviously, if somebody's 500 pounds or something like that, you'd be very concerned before you replace their knee. You're going to wear it out. It's now mechanical instead of biomechanical. So you say, right. you're going to put a lot of stress on that. And and the thought was is that they needed to lose weight. And so they said, what well, I can't exercise. My knee hurts too bad. I can't, I can't do that. I can't possibly lose weight because I'm so hobbled by this knee. And so they have done that study. And they have done that study where they replace their knees, and after they replace their knees, they get heavier. So it's not a matter of it wasn't the pain that was the reason. It wasn't the, the pain that was the reason that they were heavy. It, it was their diet and the fact that they were inactive. Yeah. There was something they could have done. Yeah, I mean, and that's not casting aspersions on people. I mean, but you know, say, well, has there ever been a study that showed that if you replace people's knees uh, because and they and they exercise more because their knees are replaced, they're going to lose weight. And, yeah, that study's been done, and they gain weight. Right. So, in other words, I think the moral from that story maybe would be: don't wait to try to get some kind of fix, quote unquote, so that you now can exercise. Find out what you can do and start doing it now. Uh, yeah, that's a reasonable thing to say. Thank you. I try to be reasonable. That's reasonable. Thought. So, I've got a list of some other stuff here, um, and uh, I don't want to run this too long, um, but so. I just wrote down real simply how much ibuprofen Advil is the brand name we typically throw out there kind of uh, interchangeably. How much ibuprofen is too much? How much ibuprofen is too much? That's a, that's a very difficult question. The maximum prescription dose just to be you know easy is 800 milligrams three times a day. So the maximum prescription dose of ibuprofen is 2,400 milligrams per day. Right. And so that is the easy answer to your question. The harder answer to your question is that uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, of which ibuprofen is one, have side effects. And some of those are dose-related, and some of those are idiosyncratic and not dose-related. And so, you say, well, I'm 14. I want to take a leave. You're not supposed to take a leave at 14. It has not been approved for people under 16. You have to take ibuprofen if you want a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug. It hasn't been studied. So a lot of these things haven't been studied. Now, some pediatricians give kids a leave because they figure, ah, it's the same thing, and do anything. And so they get away with it, and they do that. And so off-label use, they, you can do things like that. And so when you say, well, what are the, some of the side effects from ibuprofen that are dose-related? Uh, it gets kind of complicated. I don't know if I want to bore you with all that. Well, uh, I, I, uh, but, but basically, the biggest problems with ibuprofen are problems with your stomach. Uh-huh. That you can get a problem with your stomach lining. You can get ulcers. That is much more common in people who are elderly. So you say, I'm an elderly person. I'm going to take the maximum recommended dose of ibuprofen. I'm going to go to the store, and I'm going to buy ibuprofen. I'm going to take four of them three times a day because that's what the guy said on the podcast. But no, you got stomach ulcers. You're elderly. You should not be taking that much ibuprofen. You're going to end up with an ulcer. You're going to end up with trouble. Right. Ibuprofen also has cardio, all non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, as pointed out by the Vioxx lawsuits can cause people with heart problems to have worse heart problems. And so there are a lot of times cardiologists will tell people not to take nostril anti-inflammatory drugs because of their cardiac problems. There are people who are on blood thinners. Right. If you're on a blood thinner, they'll they'll further thin your blood just like aspirin does. So that person maybe shouldn't be taking it. 
And then there's an idiosyncratic reaction, which does not appear to be dose-related, but is duration-related, and that's kidney failure. And so if I ever prescribe somebody ibuprofen as a prescription, I usually will not give them 800. I'll give them 600 just because, you know, let's not do the maximum dose. Right. <laughs> and 600 three times a day. And I tell them if they're going to take this longer than 30 days on a consistent basis, then they need to get a blood test to see how their kidneys are doing because that's an idiosyncratic reaction. Some people will get kidney failure from those. And if you're taking it a lot all the time, you can get kidney failure, and if you want to see them, you can go down to you know Methodist Kidney Center or whatever and find out why everybody's kidneys failed, and you're going to find somebody who's taking too much ibuprofen or too much of this for too long. So if I so you get a blood test. So basically, if you have somebody who's on blood thinners, you have somebody who's elderly, you have cautions. If I give somebody ibuprofen, I give them 600 rather than 800, which is a little less than maximum dose, and I tell them if you're going to take this consistently for more than 30 days, you either have to get a blood test from your doctor or from me to show that it's not affecting your kidneys negative. So that's the big answer to your question. But the, the answer to your question was 20, uh, 2,400 2, milligrams a day. Well, that's, my, that's I guess my question is along the lines of maybe maybe let me drill it down even more. If I've got some just random pain, say I, my, I went and I've exercised a little bit and my shoulder's sore, and I usually take ibuprofen as my pain reliever of choice. And it says 200 on the bottle or 400 on the bottle, two pills. But I know that, you know, I could take 2,400 a day if I really wanted to. Um, is there any benefit for me from a pain relief and or anti-inflammatory from doing 400, 200 versus 400 versus 600 versus 800? Or is it, if I take two, I always, I don't know, I don't know if I made this up or if I heard this, that 200 is kind of a pain relieving dosage, but 400 is more of an anti-inflammatory dosage. And does that even make any sense or is that actually even true chemically? <laughs> well, no, okay. It's getting complicated. But the answer is yes. If you take a higher <laughs> dose of it, it will do more as far as relieve your pain up to a certain extent, which I think 800 is the maximum safe dose that you can take it. And then your question sort of leads into, is this a symptom-modifying agent or is this a disease-modifying agent? Is this actually helping me or is this just making me feel better? Okay. And there are certain inflammatory things, uh, but I can only think of two specifically that have been specifically studied to see whether or not taking the ibuprofen makes you better faster or just makes you feel better while you're getting better. One of those is tennis elbow. Tennis elbow has been studied. And yes, anti-inflammatories are one of the things that is thought to be a disease-modifying thing. I got tennis elbow. I got inflammation of my extensor tendons there. I take ibuprofen as part of my treatment regimen. I take it every day whether it hurts or not because it's getting me better. The answer is yeah. So what's what's the other study. one? An infected anterior cruciate ligament reconstruction. Oh, okay. So you had an anterior cruciate ligament reconstruction that gets infected. Uh, and you go get it washed out and you try to get the pus out of the way. You try to retain the ligament because you don't want to cut it out mm-hmm. even though it got infected. Uh, one of the things that's been shown is that if you give those people ibuprofen, they're more likely to have a good outcome than if okay. you don't. So, but I guess my question is, and that that's helpful, but my question is, is the anti-inflammatory part of ibuprofen. Is it disease modified? No, no. Is it, is it present at 200 milligrams and 800 milligrams? It doesn't require a higher dosage actually to be anti-inflammatory or does it? Uh, well, um, yeah. Regardless I mean, the, I mean, I don't know if we need to get into the pharmacology of all this stuff, but there's an enzyme that is that is affected by the 
by the medicine. Uh-huh. Okay. And that enzyme that's affected by the medicine does lots of things, but one of the things it does is inflammation. And it is inhibited by that. And if you take more of it, it's more inhibited. But you can never really completely inhibit it with those with that medicine. Okay, so even and so yes, it will people will say, What about swelling? I got something that's swollen. If I take any if I take anti inflammatories, will it make the swelling go down? The answer is no. It will not. Okay. Ice will, elevating it will. But if you take anti inflammatories because you got a swollen something, because it'll make the swelling go down, it will not. And as a matter of fact, some anti inflammatories, one of the side effects is they'll make your hands and feet swell, so they can actually make swelling worse. Hmm. And so you say, well, they inhibit inflammation, but not as strong as would be required to do something like make a swollen knee go down. It would make it feel better in time, and that would help. Now, if you're talking about other things like corticosteroids, like in a steroid shot, now you're talking a whole other Because we're not talking non-steroidal. Now we're talking steroidal. <laughs> yeah, now we're talking a whole other. Right. And if you start talking about things like rheumatoid arthritis and, and things that inhibit inflammation. Inhibit, and all those kind of things. Inhibit that. Remicade and all those things mm-hmm. from the yes, biologics and all that. Those are disease-modifying agents. Right. Okay. Never That's beyond the scope of our podcast. But I'm just saying. <laughs> no, no. You know, but basically, <laughs> the answer to you is, if yeah, I took two and it didn't seem to work. Should I take another one? You can take another one. Can I take two more? You can take you can take 800. Right. Well, I, I want to take a handful. It's like, don't take a handful. You can only take <laughs> You're gonna 800 three times a day. And you say, well, that made me better faster. And the answer is, eh, probably won't make you better faster. It'll make you feel better while you're getting better. But there is a study from the tennis elbow and the other things that so, well, it may actually be making you get right. better faster. Okay. But it's not one of the things that you would give somebody who had an injury saying, this will make you better faster. This will make you feel better while you get better. Right. Glucosamine chondroitin. All those things you see on TV. Take this. Your joints will feel better. I started taking extract of porpoise tail, and now my knees are perfect. All right. You want to get into that? Just, into just that. briefly. Is it is there, any, right. is there any truth to it at all, or is it well, voodoo? We'll talk to you about that. Okay. We'll talk about cartilage. And when you're talking about cartilage, if you have degenerative cartilage, you have arthritis in your knee, the degenerative type, you say, well, I want something that will put the cartilage back on my knee. You will never get it. There's no medicine, there's no surgery even that will be able to put arthritic, put cartilage back on something that's arthritic. So if you say, I have, um, you know, I want to buy this so my cartilage will get rebuilt, the answer is no. It does not rebuild your cartilage. They've done that study in, in, in rabbits. But it's hard to bring the rabbits back into this. Poor rabbits. But they've done that study in rabbits, they've done that study in people. And you cannot microscopically or macroscopically see that it has made the degeneration slow down or has rebuilt your cartilage. So the answer is no. Now, let's get a little more in-depth if you want. Okay. There's glucosamine chondroitin is a, is, a, is a supplement. It is classified as a food by the Food and Drug Administration, which is that thing. And everybody who advertises it on, in print, I mean, Internet may be different, but, uh, but in print or on TV or wherever – well, they'll always put it at the bottom. This is, this substance is not designed yeah. to treat about it, uh, any disease. Even though we just like told you it would in our commercial. Yeah, it's even not though we told you 15 <laughs> times it, it does, it, it's not supposed to do that. Okay. So what does that mean? Well, that means it's marketed as a food. And there are lots of things marketed as food, like cupcakes, and Wonder Bread, and these sorts of things. <laughs> and they are not evaluated by the FDA with double-blind placebo-controlled studies and all this stuff to see whether they're safe and see whether they're effective. There have been nutritional supplements that have been taken off the market. Ephedra is one. 
Another one was L-tyrosine way back in the day that were actually killing people. And basically, they, they're not supposed to do anything. If you look at the label, if you look at the ads, they're not supposed to do anything, good or bad. Right. And that's how they can market them as foods. Supposed to just be like eating a, it's, a you know, If you say, is this supposed to do anything? No, it's not supposed to do anything. If it did anything, we'd have to market it as a drug. So they have to put that little thing. It doesn't do anything on there. And so, is it safe? Would be the first question. I have never seen anybody with glucosamine chondroitin poisoning. I've never seen anybody with glucosamine built up in the lens of their eye that had cataracts or their teeth turned, you know, got filled up with glucosamine, their kidneys clogged up with glucosamine. I've never seen a glucosamine poisoning situation. And so, but it's not totally studied. I mean, hopefully there's nothing running around like allergies or something, you know, that I guess, nobody knows. Well, I sort of, would you ever tell anybody to take it? Well, okay. we'll get to that. <laughs> and so, no, as far as it being <laughs> safe, it's generally recognized as safe. I mean, you should be able to take it, and it should not should not hurt you. Okay. The next question would be, does it do anything? Okay. Because that would be the important thing. Well, we've already talked about putting cartilage on there. They've done that study. It does not. Well, then, if it's not a disease-modifying agent, like we talked about, is it a symptom-modifying agent? And the answer is, appears to be. It appears to be in the studies. If you put somebody on ibuprofen, you put somebody in glucosamine and chondroitin, their results are similar. Huh. They say, well, well, it's just placebo. Well, no, we gave another group of people sugar pills, and they didn't do good at all. And so <laughs> if you say, well, uh, are they the same? I mean, is it help? And the answer is yes. It appears to make people feel better. Does it put garlic back on? No. Is it safe? It appears to be safe. So if you, if you ask me the question... Have I ever told anybody to take it? The answer is yes, but I usually give them a little spiel about how it's not supposed it's to not do that. Your- <laughs> but they have enough people take it, and enough people have said it works, that people have gotten interested enough that they've done independent studies that have shown, yes, it does something. And say, so, well, what could it possibly be doing bad to them? So far, nobody's found anything. Right. And so if you said, I got bad knees, I want to take glucosamine, I say, take it. Go ahead, take it. All right. And say, well, it's expensive and it doesn't seem to work. Well, then don't take it. It's not, it's not helping you. And you're just spending money on something that's not building your right. cartilage back up. I'll show you these. I'll show you these sugar pills at a much discounted rate. But it does appear to be much more safe than ibuprofen. Oh. And you say, well, can I take ibuprofen at that same time? Absolutely. Well, what about Tylenol? Yeah, you can take Tylenol, ibuprofen, and that all at the same time. And it doesn't seem to be a problem. Oh, interesting. I, I was expecting that was not the answer I expected on that. I thought the glucosamine chondroitin thing would be a blue star ointment stop stitching fast advertisement oh. <laughs> but it's in that the same giant place. bottle of glucosamine chondroitin that i just got from costco that's now sitting in my bath bathroom had me worried for just a second there <laughs> <laughs> well, Stephen brought it back around but it is expensive and as far as what, what is the maximum dose of it what is the dose what's the recommended dose what if i took five of them what if i only took a half one i don't think anybody knows that i think it's more I mean, that's where you start getting worried about the marketing thing. If somebody puts a grain of glucosamine in there, they can say it's glucosamine. The 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 pills that you take are not full of what you think they are. Right. I mean, if it, you know, the ibuprofen pill is like one tenth of one percent ibuprofen. The rest of it's starch and yeah, the food coloring and all this other stuff. So, <laughs> you know, just because the pill is necessarily big. I mean, you can look and see how much is in it. And then they say, well, where'd they get it from? They get it from this, they get it from that. What's their process of doing it? Well, the one study is a little different than these. The, those sort of regulations are not enforced. So do you have a brand that you tell people to buy? Not necessarily because, like I tell you, there's no big study about yeah. which brand is best. Try one if it doesn't seem to help. Try a different one. I, and, or, or don't waste your money if it doesn't yeah. seem like it's helpful. Interesting. So, um, 
Don, you, you got there in the, the notes. Magnets. Magnets? How do they work? How do you magnets work? These, these commercials well, we with these people that, that have these a lot of magnetic stuff. bracelets, and then they uh, they uh, say that it makes every joint in their body feel better. What's up with that? I mean, you see all kinds of crazy stuff like that, and it doesn't seem like any of it's even based in reality, let alone medical science. The ones where they put the bracelet, they don't have the bracelet, and they the person can push them over, and they put the bracelet on. And now suddenly, they're magically, the person can't push them over because their balance is better. That, that, that's the one. Any, that's what I'm talking about. I have not seen any study that shows magnets are beneficial. That's for, for anything, except for uh, things that magnets are designed to be. Except for things. <laughs> what, that magnets what about are this? Designed. What about this far eastern chakram? I don't even know what that is. <laughs> well, uh, but there. Are, but the thing is, is that I mean there. The mantra that people that do the pharmaceuticals have are are basically these have been undiscovered, and 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 so they're the greatest thing ever. Well, if they're the greatest thing ever, uh, then they should market them as drugs. They should get a patent on it if they can get a patent on it. Some things you can't, and they would be they would be swept up underneath you because they're, you know, but, but they, a lot of those things have not been evaluated and there are things that can kill you that have been marketed as nutritional supplements like ephedra. And so this, and the other thing that kills me to say, well, this is natural, so it can't hurt you. So is arsenic. Well, I mean, if, well, the best you know, arsenic is a naturally occurring element. So is uranium, but they say, well, this is natural. I say, okay, well, why don't you go out into your backyard and start eating the leaves off what plant? Off any of those plants. They're grown out there. They're natural. They can't possibly hurt you. And then you tell me how you're doing tomorrow. I yeah, bet exactly. you won't be doing so well. I mean, you may. Especially but, if you get hold of that poison ivy. Yeah. Yeah. So, if you start eating poison ivy, well, I've ate the poison ivy. It's natural. It can't possibly hurt me. Well, I think you might be wrong. Well, Cobras are natural. Sharks are natural. <laughs> Uranium's natural. And just because it's not. <laughs> You know, just because it's man-made doesn't mean it's good or bad. Yeah. Although, obviously, you can really mess things up. So, uh, you know, we got the balance bracelets. What about the – you always hear copper bracelets for arthritis. Uh, no no study has shown that that's helped. That's what I thought, too. It helps the pocketbook of the people that are selling the copper bracelets. Well, there's a – well, here, there, there, here's two things. Uh, this is more pontificating by me. There are two things. One is the placebo effect. So if you think something's going to work, it's a real thing. You can do a study that will show that those people will be better if they think that it's going to work. Right. They will actually Placebo help. effects are real effect. Right. If the effect is real, yeah. Okay. The other thing is, is that a lot of those things are given for things that get better by themselves. For example, if I said I want to give you a pill that will make your muscle soreness you got from running when you first started running, if you take this pill, it's all three hundred dollars. <laughs> if you take this pill, which is just filled with starch or whatever, take this pill once a day for a week, you'll have a lot less pain. If you just keep running, if you take this pill, yeah, and they say that's absolutely true. I took that. My friend took that. Everybody I know is taking that, and it works every single time. <laughs> and that's where you get a lot of the back pain things because right. if if there is a treatment for something that works, there's usually one or two treatments for that something. Right. <laughs> there's only a couple of ways to fix it. Right. So you know, say, well, I have back pain. Well, what'd you do? I wore copper braces. What would you do? I went to physical therapy. What'd you do? I had surgery. What'd you do? I got a new bed. What'd you do? I did this or that or the other. Well, back pain, even radicular back pain, where it causes pain down your legs, will be better 90% of the time in six weeks. 
regardless if you got a new bed or a complication or whatever, a pill. Yeah. People can heal themselves. So if you get a cold, it's like Granny's cold medicine. So I had a cold, but I took this and I was better in three days. Well, whatever you took, you'd be better in three days. So then that's where you get all these different desperate right. things uh, about what's good and what works. And you get all these testimonials. Testimonials is the weakest uh, level. And of course, I'm telling you these things, but uh, as the weakest level of evidence there is. Yeah. There's no, there's no weaker level of evidence than some guy told me it works. I can testify to that. <laughs> so, Mark and, and Don, we're running a little a little bit long, not too long, but a little bit long. Um, is there anything, uh, since we got Stephen on the line here, uh, Dr. Eggleston, I, I should say. So, we have Dr. Eggleston here with us for the last few minutes. Um, is there anything, any questions you guys can think of that, uh, that, I'm, that I missed there in my interrogation of him that you might want to ask? Yeah, I've got this terrible rash, and I was hoping you could look at it on Skype. <laughs> I think that's been blocked by our net nanny. <laughs> and net nanny won't let that image through. <laughs> so, or- orthopedically speaking, it's better to exercise than not to exercise. Would you Would you agree with that? Yeah. Uh, yes. Except you know, unless you're more abundant, you know, an ICU or something, sometimes that would be bad. But even burn patients that have been significantly burned. Uh, if you get them out of the little air bed or whatever and they're burned over 60% of their body uh, and you get them on a treadmill, if they can take it, they'll actually get better faster. That's as crazy as that sounds. Well, you know, it's kind of like um, my whole thing with diet drinks. Another one of those things where there's every you know every opinion in the world that aspartame is bad for you, Splenda is bad for you, it isn't bad for you, it is bad for you, Truvia is bad for you, it isn't bad for you. And then on the opposite side, the carbonated beverages, some people say there's People say, I have no problem with carbonated beverage. Others say it'll destroy your kidneys if you take drink any of it. But I don't really know for sure any of that, whether um, carbonated water is bad for you or uh, whether or not diet you know, the artificial sweeteners are bad for you. But I do know that being 150 pounds overweight is bad for you every time. Yeah, and, so, and smoking is bad for you every time. Yeah, so I've opted right smoking now. Smoking actually does have one protective effect. Not a lot of people know this, but if you're a smoker, you're less likely to get uterine cancer. Oh, but other than that, everything else is bad. And if you don't have a uterus, I, <laughs> uterine so for cancer, guys, you got no excuse. Uterine cancer is actually very, very rare. It's more ovarian cancer, but uterine cancer is very, very rare. Uh, and that's the only thing that they've shown that if you're a smoker, you're less likely to get more likely to get back pain, more likely to file a workman's compensation claim, more likely to get a heart attack, more likely to get a stroke, more likely to have high blood pressure. Smoking is just absolutely horrible. And then being overweight is an independent risk factor for many things. Yeah. Diabetes, hypertension, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So you know, I've opted right now. But if you're if you're overweight and you don't have high blood pressure, and you don't have diabetes, your cardiovascular risk is not actually that much higher. Yeah, and that's that used to be me. My, you know, three four years ago, I was significantly overweight, but my blood pressure was still decent and my blood sugar was still decent. Then last year, you know, after had not hadn't checked it for a while, it had started creeping up on me. I guess my I'd only gone on good genetics for so long and whatever. I don't know, but um, so yeah, but. I've opted for now. I drink diet drinks because whether this aspartame is bad for me or the carbonated water is bad for me, I don't know. But I know that for me right now, that helps me keep my calorie intake down and keep my weight down. So I'll worry about transitioning to water more later. So uh, I wouldn't get – I'm just saying I wouldn't get all bent out of shape about that if somebody said, you shouldn't be drinking that diet drink. Are they caffeinated or non-caffeinated? Yes. They're caffeinated? Both. Well, okay. Well, I drink it, both. I usually drink caffeine. Someone who does not drink any caffeine that drinks a lot of caffeine will get dehydrated. Somebody who's used to drinking caffeine, their kidneys will auto-regulate. They will not dehydrate them. Oh, There's a little thing. Yeah. Did you hear that? That's, that's life-changing for me. 
Because I, ne- I don't ever feel dehydrated because I drink. Yeah, and there's care. always a big controversy on whether caffeine's bad for you or not. Yeah. Uh, it's a mild and, analgesic. Uh, it, there's actually a study that, that shows it will help you burn fat. And, and you'll burn fat preferentially, preferentially to uh, the other sugar stores that you have. So everybody who, you know, you want to build up your, your glucose stores or whatever, mm-hmm. so you so you post load and these sorts of things. So there was a group of uh, marathon runners, this is a true story, who decided that what they were going to do is they were going to drink, they were going to take a bunch of caffeine. And that way when they ran, they preferentially burned fat and so they'd have a lot more at the end. Well, the only problem is, is that caffeine is also a diuretic yeah, and it's also a uh, it, uh, it'll, it'll make you have diarrhea, <laughs> and so that didn't work out too well. I think they made it about six or eight miles. Yeah. You don't want to go crazy on something like that. I've actually heard stories of bicycle riders, uh, you know, like competitive bike riders who are, who are tar- who are taking BC powder, which is aspirin and and uh, caffeine, caffeine probably. basically, and they're putting like in their drink, and they're you know mildly dosing themselves with caffeine without having to drink a soda while they're out biking. Because of the the mild analgesic effect and the, a little bit of uh, it'll, it prefer- it, it, yeah. caffeine will in studies show that you'll preferentially burn. now not a much and that's one of the big problems with a lot of the things and that's where a lot of the confusion comes in is if you say uh, something does something the question is how much of that something does it do right okay and 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 one of the bad things about it I don't know uh, let me think of a of a good example maybe. Um, Ease. Uh, washing your car makes it go faster. Okay. Well, you have dirt on your car. Creates drag. Okay. So your dirt car creates dra- drag. Okay. So what I'm going to do, since I know dirt creates drag, is I'm going to make sure I wa- wax and wash my car so I'll get better gas mileage. It's like that may theoretically could possibly work, but that is such a small portion of gas mileage in your right. car working right that if you spend all your time thinking about that, you're, you're doing nothing. So you need to avoid things like being way overweight or smoking and these big things. Mm-hmm. You say, well, where do I take vitamin B12 or not? It's like, oh, I'm going to smoke, but I'm going to take vitamin E. Not even the same ballpark. Right. Not even nowhere close to the same kind of effects you get. Yeah, there's a reason that the software that I work on has on one set of templates that they use has three little red stoplight, you know, like little lights that are they're not like lights. They're on the screen. They're, they look like lights. Green, yellow, red. Or whether the person is a smoker, has high blood pressure, or has diabetes, <laughs> you know, and yeah. is obese. You know, there, there's four little things across there, and that's the re- those are the big, the big killers, the main problems, the things that are absolutely going to kill you over time if you don't do something about them. Yeah, and age and cholesterol are, are probably two yeah. other ones. Yeah, lipids is another. Yeah. Oh yeah, somebody said the other day about I've never seen a, I've never seen a 90 year old overweight person. No, I have. <laughs> Not I many haven't. of them. No. They happen, but but the thing is, is that they usually don't have diabetes and those other things. But right. but you, but you don't see as many. Yeah. That's for sure. Well, Stephen, I got we, we usually finish up with a couple of one of my mantras is eat less and exercise more, which is the pretty simple fundamental. Seems idea. reasonable. Yeah, seems reasonable. Again, I'm reasonable two for two in my reasonableness with Steve tonight. <laughs> so we try to end with some kind of tip to help people eat less and some kind of tip to help people exercise more. So, um, Don. Aaron, are you, are you still there? You're there with me. I've been talking so Certainly. much. Sometimes. Um, eat less tip. What do we have? Do you the eat less tip this week is drink more water. What you think? What does drinking more water have to do with eating less? But drinking more water means that a you're hydrated and your body can produce can 
process. That's where I was going for process your food better. And B, you're not going to eat as much if you drink a lot of water. Well, not not gorge yourself with water, but if you drink water <laughs> before you eat, then you're not going to have as much room in your stomach, and it's going to help you out. And being hydrated is always fun. Yeah, I so, know for me personally, when I go out and exercise, I can tell if I've been bad that day, quote unquote, and not drank enough fluids. Um by my endurance level, you know, I, I can feel myself kind of petering out and I've correlated it back to, I haven't hardly drank anything today. You know, I, I can feel myself getting tired on that. Now I, I went online and just pulled up some basics of what different, like uh, I think Mayo Clinic maybe, or somebody else recommended um, men, they recommend three liters of fluid a day. It doesn't have to specifically be water. They said, but, uh, but we're talking about water. So water women, 2.2 liters. I guess a lot of that depends on your size. Would that be true, Steven? Does it, a big fat person need more water than a little tiny skinny person? Uh, not a tremendous amount more because the fat doesn't store water. Okay, so if I'm a 95 pound female or a 300 pound male, we'll still need similar amounts of. It depends on uh, how much you sweat. Yeah, sweat bit. and activity level, I guess. Yeah, affects sweating. I mean, you may need less. I mean, you may need a lot less. If right, if she's a 95 pound marathon runner. Yeah. <laughs> well, then the eight by eight rule, eight eight ounce glasses a day. I've heard that thrown around. It's kind of a way to. To think about it. There is something called psychogenic polydipsia where you can drink way too much water mm-hmm. and then you can get sick from doing water that. Water poisoning. Yeah. That's, you can get sick from, from doing that. But your your kidneys and your body will pretty much auto-regulate uh, what you need. And one of the ways they auto-regulate that is not healthy if you don't drink enough. Because they'll 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 have enough water for their for your kidneys and enough water for things, but what they'll do is they'll they'll decrease your blood volume and, and do all sorts of things that and so, yeah, if it's almost like having enough gas or having too much gas. So you can put too much gas in your car where it spills out all over the place. But if you if you have enough gas, if you drink a little bit more water than you need, you'll just pee it out. Right. If you if you don't drink near enough, then your kidneys will start your body will what start they need to do. Things. And you can look at your pee and say, man, I drink some more water. Yeah. That's because your kidneys are keeping you straight. Yeah. But it's not, it's not, not good. You definitely you. would not want to do anything that expends a lot of water if you haven't drank it because right. that's where you get in problems with heat heat related illness so is it is the pale yellow to light yellow rule a true rule i guess it depends on what you eat but, <laughs> but I mean, if you have really concentrated urine and you and you say well if i drank enough water well you've drank enough water you're not going to keel over and die if you're in it at all you probably you should drink more water right. i mean because your kidneys are having to work hard which doesn't necessarily damage them, but they're having to work hard in order to keep you straight. You're drinking more than you should. I mean, less than you should, less than you're designed to drink. Right. So, yeah, I would say drinking water is good because it will fill you up. As long as you don't gorge on water because competitive eaters drink like gallons of water at a time. So their stomachs stomach will actually stuff. expand so they can eat more. Uh, but, yeah, drinking water versus something else like a Dr. Pepper or beer or whatever. Yeah, it's it, what are you substituting the water for is really important and you have to have a certain amount especially if you're going to run mm-hmm. or do something that's very active because you can get really sick if, if you don't drink enough water before those activities and you don't really have to worry about drinking too much water because if you do you'll just pee it out right. unless you go way overboard and there are people who do that who just drink water and water and water and water and water and you can end up in trouble yeah. but it's very rare I, mean, you, you, I, haven't, I haven't hardly ever seen that if actually. you drink if you're uh if they're recommending eight eight ounce glasses, I bet you a lot of people have a hard time even doing that in a day. Yeah, that's a lot of water. Yeah, and, but uh, 
it's not going to hurt you. Yeah. And it's and, and and if you're not drinking enough, it will it, it, it will hurt you. Be a problem. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, drinking water is a very important thing. Yeah, you should drink a lot of water. Absolutely. All right, I'm going to jump right into the exercise more tip. Kind of finish this up here. Our wives are waiting to go eat dinner, I believe. Um, one thing out for me, exercising, I've set a goal in front of myself uh, several times. So my first goal was to be able to do a push-up. When I first started this whole weight loss thing, I couldn't barely hold myself in the plank position. Um, could not even begin to even think about doing a push-up. Now I can do, I don't know, six or ten pretty good push-ups, uh, which is definite progress in the last year. So my goal for this year, by the end of this year, is to be able to do a chin-up. I've never done a chin-up in my entire life. So I'm working for that. And then also, you know, I use the gobble jog, which is the first 5K I did, was as a race to kind of motivate me in the area of running and walking. So just throwing that out there, set a goal, pick some kind of physical thing that you can't do now that you want to be able to do. It may be climb a flight of stairs without being gasping for air. It may be able to go play basketball with your son that you can't do now. It may be, like I said, do a push-up, do a chin-up, uh, tie your shoes, like Stephen was saying. Pick some kind of physical thing that you're shooting for and make it a milestone and go for it. Um, and as long as you set that kind of in front of yourself, that'll that'll help you stay motivated. At least it helped me quite a bit. So, bringing this thing in for a crash landing. Mark, how could somebody contact us if they had further questions uh, or aspersions to cast or any other way they want to communicate with us? Make your wishes known at uh, elementop.com in the forums. Uh, we have a one meal, one workout forum there where you can uh, uh, communicate with uh, like-minded individuals, people on the same journey as you are. Uh, if you think uh, Dr. Eggleston is a quack, that's the place you say it. If you think he's the smartest man you've ever known, that's the place his wife will say it. Um, that's, uh, uh, also she doesn't can, think that. Oh, okay. <laughs> your mom? No? no. Okay. Um also, there's uh, uh, one meal one workout.com, which is uh, all things related to Mr. Aaron Butler, and uh, I'll let him tell you a little bit about that. Yeah, if you go out there and look for one meal one workout, and that's the number one, not O N E, um, pretty much anywhere you can find us Facebook.com forward slash one meal one workout, Twitter.com forward slash one meal one workout, YouTube.com forward slash one meal one workout, uh, USA.gov.com forward slash, just kidding. Um, but we're out there. Um, pretty much anywhere so contact us let us know something give us some feedback if you have a show topic something you'd like us to cover on a show we would love to have that um just feel free to jump on there and let us know something if you have any questions for uh for myself or for don or mark or about the show or something i can pass on maybe even get some feedback from dr eggleston here uh feel free to shoot me an email at aaron a-a-r-o-n at one mill and workout.com and don't forget the uh, stranger danger contest we're having you could win the very first one meal one workout t-shirt which i promise to be super snappy and um i think that's about it so don anything else before we go i think we're good mark i'm i ran out of things an hour ago all right steven appreciate your time um appreciate you to be here and, and and visiting with us so as always into every show remember before starting any diet or exercise program it's recommended that you consult your health care provider 